Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3. I've chosen to edit today's text for the sake of time, just cutting out some of the extra stuff. So I encourage you uh, to read the entire chapter word for word. Probably this afternoon would be a good idea. But uh, I just wanted to kind of be as efficient with our time as we can. By way of context, I just want you to be aware uh, that the events of chapter 3, which we're about to read, do not occur on the heels of what we looked at last week in chapter 2. Actually, depending upon a variety of factors... It could be as little as nine or as many as 20 years that separate chapter 2 and chapter 3. Also, it seems likely that the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2 that's recorded there, where Nebuchadnezzar is identified as the head of gold in that image that he dreamed about, that that probably filled his imagination eventually causing him to commission the building of a statue that I believe, in his mind, represents himself and the expression of his great sense of pride in himself and what he saw himself to be. In fact, as we cross over next week into chapter 4, that will become abundantly clear. But let's read chapter 3 right now, beginning with verse One, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. That's 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image and they stood before the image. And the herald proclaimed... You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, tragon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, As soon as all the peoples heard the sound of every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image. At that time, certain Chaldeans, now remember Chaldeans is a word I'm using now, but it's it's in the Bible there, but I'm just using the one word to represent the sorcerers and the the advisors and the wise men and all that. So at, at that time... Uh, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." There are certain Jews whom you have appointed 
over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Remember, we saw that last week in chapter 2. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. I like this statement here. Just so cocky and arrogant. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, Yahweh, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against them. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind them and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. And King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered, True, O king. He said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then they came out from the fire, and all of the officials gathered together and saw that the fire had, had, uh, uh, had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire came upon them. Nebuchadnezzar said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel to deliver his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. We saw that last week, right? Torn limb from limb, and their houses laid to ruins. Literally, their houses turned into a dung heap. He liked that phrase, I think. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Father, I thank you for this passage of Scripture and for the insights it gives us into your working in times past. Lord, may we learn from this and even find uh, application in times present and times future 
as we seek to live for you in this pagan world. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we have already seen in chapters 1 and 2, Daniel and his three friends had already been tested. Test number one, would God honor their commitment to his dietary laws when King Nebuchadnezzar wanted them to eat the food that he was providing? And we find that God did honor that commitment, and he blessed them uh, for their faith-filled obedience. Test number two, would God deliver them from the death sentence that Nebuchadnezzar had issued over the Chaldeans because uh, they could not meet his demand recounting or interpreting uh, the dream that God had given him again? Their faith in him was rewarded as God revealed the dream and the interpretation to that dream. As we come now to chapter 3, it brings us to the greatest test of their faith to date. Bow before the golden image that the king had built or face death by cremation. I want you to think about that a minute. Death by cremation. History tells us that death by cremation was somewhat common in Babylon as a punishment. Uh, The prophet Jeremiah, who is a contemporary of Daniel, wrote about two Jews during that same time who professed themselves to be prophets. One of those Jews' name was Ahab, and that's not the king that we read about. It's a different man named Ahab. And the other, his name was Zedekiah. And these things come out of Jeremiah chapter 29. And when we read the account, we find that they were living immorally. They were sleeping with other people's wives and all that kind of stuff. But they were also then saying that they were speaking revelations that God had given them when God, in fact, had given them no revelation at all. And eventually, God judged them by giving them over to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, when he got a hold of them, did not know about what God's intentions were. So apparently, they did something to upset King Nebuchadnezzar. But whatever the case may be, Uh, Jeremiah tells us that he, King Nebuchadnezzar, threw these two Jews into a fiery furnace and they died, of course. Now, the event of this situation actually became a curse among the Jews. So if if I'm a Jew and I'm angry, you know, with you, I might want to throw down a curse on you. And this is the curse. The curse would be, Yahweh make you like Zedekiah and Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. How would you like to have that thrown down on you? You know? And so uh, we find that that concept of death by cremation was kind of a thing in Babylon. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, they knew that this was no joke. If the king said that he would execute anyone who did not bow down before his image by way of being thrown into a fiery furnace, they knew that he meant it. Now before I go on with this narrative, I want to take just a moment to address the issue of Daniel's absence. In chapter 3, we only see the three friends of Daniel. 
And actually, I titled this message, Daniel and the Golden Statue, and yet Daniel is nowhere to be found. Um, his absence has led uh, Bible scholars, commentators, and teachers to speculate as to why is Daniel not mentioned. And there's many reasons that are given. I'm going to just share three with you quickly. Some have said, well, we think that Daniel is not mentioned because he was probably away on some government business. Okay. Others say, well, no, probably Daniel was ill that day. Couldn't leave his apartment. So he didn't get wrapped up in all these affairs. Others have speculated that maybe Daniel just didn't see it being a big problem to bow down because his heart was fully committed to Yahweh and he was not worshiping. He was just honoring the king's deal and so he's not mentioned because, well, you know, he, he bowed down. Uh, the fact of the matter is we have no idea why Daniel is not mentioned. But there are a few things that we do know that may give us some clue. Number one, we know that Daniel is the author of these accounts. So Daniel is the one telling us the story about his three friends. It's unlikely if he was sneaking around uh, doing something he shouldn't have been do doing, they wouldn't have written the account like he did. So we know that he's the author, uh, and uh, he's the one telling us about their test of faith. Uh, obviously, as he wrote, he left himself out. Number two, given all the other tests of faith that Daniel faced and passed, it's highly unlikely that he would have caved at this particular test when you look at all the others that he boldly faced and, uh, and God delivered him from. So we know that to be true. Number three, the most likely answer as to why he is not part of the story is because from chapter two, we know that Daniel remained at the king's court after he had interpreted the king's dream, while his three friends in their promotion were put out into the, the province. And so um, he was in a different location. Perhaps his exalted position kept any would-be tattletales from throwing him under the bus. Remember, he was one of the king's favorites because he's the one who actually told the dream and interpreted it. And a person is wise to think it through before trying to throw a king's favorite under the bus. Again, we really don't know why Daniel is not mentioned. What we do know is that uh, some of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's peers, Gentiles, in the Babylonian government. They witnessed the fact that when this all happened, they didn't bow, they stood. And they saw it, I am confident, they saw it as an opportunity to express their racial bias against them because there definitely was a racial bias. These Jews were captives, right? And they're not equal to us who are free men. And, of course, we know that through the years, Jews have faced uh, racial bias um, uh, with almost every people. And so I would say that these reporters of this situation saw it as that opportunity and also as an opportunity to have them removed from their exalted position so that maybe they could be promoted and take their place. In so doing, what we find as we get back to the text is that they brought three accusations 
against these men to the king. Number one, they said that these men disregard you, king. They have no respect for you. Number two, they do not serve your gods. And number three, these men do not worship the golden image that you had set up. Now, accusation number one is categorically false. They had faithfully and effectively served Nebuchadnezzar. And he knew that. He knew full well that these men had been effective in his government. And he liked them, as we'll see in just a minute, because he gave them a second chance. That's not common, right? Uh, And he knew that they had been faithful to him. But accusations two and three were absolutely true. They served only Yahweh. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar knew that too. He had no problem with that. He gave them no grief that they didn't worship Marduk and the other gods of Babylon. He knew where they stood. But to directly defy his command regarding his statue, Nebuchadnezzar saw that as a personal slap in the face and a potential statement of disloyalty to him as king. Now, it's not unusual at all that Nebuchadnezzar got angry and ordered these men to be brought before him to give an account because they refused to obey his command. What was unusual, as I just said a moment ago, is that he gave them a second chance to obey his command. You see, despotic rulers rarely give second chances to those who fail in the assignment that they're given uh, or fail to produce the results that were demanded. And over the years, I have heard people refer to Yahweh like that. I've heard people say that Yahweh is an angry God. That he sits in the heavens looking for people to pound when they disregard him or when they do not keep his commandments. And that brings me to truth point number one today. It is true that Yahweh is a God of wrath and judgment for those who ultimately disregard his righteous commands. That is a fact. We cannot overlook that. But we also discover in Scripture that he is equally a God of mercy and grace, giving sinners multiple chances to embrace his son and multiple opportunities for his own children to repent and walk with him again once they have strayed off course. Now, it is true. He can be a God of wrath, and rightly so, to those who reject him. But how many opportunities does he give sinners over and over and over to come and repent and believe? And even us, his children, when we get out of the way with him, he gives us many opportunities, multiple opportunities to repent and get right with him, and get back on course. I would say this, that one is wise when they act on the chances that uh, are given to embrace Jesus as Savior. And one is wise who already has embraced Jesus when they take advantage of the opportunities to maintain alignment with his plans and purposes. I would simply just throw in this, Where are you today 
Are you one of those it would be wise for you to repent and put your faith in Jesus? Or are you one of my brothers and sisters who may have gotten off track and it would be wise for you today to realign yourself with the Lord and walk with him faithfully again? Well, we come to verses 13 through 18. And as it relates to this particular account, the first test of faith for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came at the sound of the musical instruments and their refusal to bow down. Now, as I thought about that, it occurred to me that this issue, this test that they were facing in this context was, was somewhat peripheral, Me- meaning simply that the, the, the order to do this came to the masses. It wasn't something that was directed at them. It, they were just part of the group. And, and, and the, the message didn't come from somebody really important. It just came from one of the king's messengers who came to say what the king had to say. And, and then beyond that, when the time came to bow, they were really just part of a larger crowd. They had thousands, obviously, around them. And all they had to do was just remain standing. It wasn't... I mean, it was a test, but it was somewhat, I'd say, of a peripheral test. The second test in this situation, though, came as they now stood before an angry king. They're no longer out there with the masses, and he's willing to give them a second chance. From a human perspective, they blew their first chance. From a human perspective, we would say, if I blew my first chance, maybe I shouldn't blow the second one. So there they are. And this test was much different because it was literally in their face. The demand was very personal. It was directed right at them. Imagine three of you standing before the king. And it's the king who's making the demand, not some lackey, right? He's the one who's saying it, the man with all the authority. And his demand required a response. There was no way to get around that. They would have to go one way or the other with this second chance. And as the king brought his demand to a close, he said this to them, and who is the God who will deliver you from Uh, from my hands. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? At this point, they have an opportunity to respond. And I think that when we read their response, there can be the tendency to interject um, a tone of belligerence, a tone of or an attitude of superiority, or a demeanor of cockiness. But there's no grammatical or contextual evidence to make that a viable way of seeing it. In fact, the context of chapters 1 through 6 continually demonstrate, this is important, that while these men were resolute in their commitment to honor Yahweh, they were also respectful to the pagan authorities that Yahweh had placed over them. 
committed, yes. I'm going to serve the Lord. But respectful, nonetheless, to those pagan authorities that their God had placed over them. I want you to look with me at verses 16 through 18 again. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now right there, it, it, for me anyway, it's like, it sounds very cocky. It sounds, we don't have any need to answer you. Right? That's the way it kind of comes across when I read it. But when you look at the Hebrew and what is really being said, it's not the way it comes across. What they're actually saying is, King, we have no defense. We're guilty as charged. We have no defense. There's nothing that we can say to make this any better. We are exactly in the position that you have said. They go on to say, and if this be so, meaning if this is going to be our fate, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Truth point number two. Living in a pagan world requires times of careful diplomacy from God's children. I've hit on that. This is the third or fourth time I've hit on that. But there will come times when one must respectfully stand their ground, clearly stating their commitment to God's authority and refusing to follow man's ungodly demands. There are times that we need to be careful not to unnecessarily offend. But there will come times when we must make it clear. We're going to obey our God and not your ungodly demands. Now, as I wrote that in my office on Thursday, I thought to myself, this would be a great opportunity to share several contemporary examples. But knowing that we had a short time today with communion and other things, I thought, no, that's going to take up too much time. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to let the Holy Spirit help you with that. But what I am going to give you is some instruction that I believe would be very helpful if you're trying to figure out whether this is a time of diplomacy or a time of absolute statement of what I will or will not do. So... If you're, if you're thinking about taking a stand, like Meshach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you're thinking about taking a stand like is written there in truth point number two, then you got to know this, that you need to search God's word to ensure that the matter at hand is one that actually requires such bold, faith-filled action. What I want to say to that is, is I think in our day and time, We've been conditioned to think that every ungodly demand requires us to make some kind of life or death stand. And that's not necessarily the case. In fact, we see throughout Scripture that there are many times when it's better to be a little bit more diplomatic 
and not cause an unnecessary offense. So what does God's word say about that particular issue that I'm facing? Which way would it point me? Number two, we must commit it to fervent prayer. Lord, I'm facing this situation. Now, how would you have me respond to this? Is this a time for diplomacy? Is this a time for a matter-of-fact statement of what I will or will not do? And let's just say that you read the word and you pray, and the message you get back from both is, this is a time to take a stand. This is a time to state categorically, this is what I will do, and this is what I will not do. Well, then, it must be carried out in an attitude of humility rather than arrogant self-will. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood firm in their faith, confessing to the king that they could not, they would not serve his gods or worship his image. Now, I've got a big pink note here. They made it clear. We do not worship or serve your gods. And we will not worship the image that you created. But I want you to take note that they did not refuse to serve the king. They did not refuse to serve him. Nor did they refuse to give him the respect that his God-given position and authority required. In fact, the king knew that because remember the three accusations? He only repeated the last two. He didn't say they disregard me or have no respect for me because he knew better. He knew differently. And here they are demonstrating it in that way. Well, as we move into verses 19 through 23, it becomes quite clear in very short order that God was not going to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fire. And this then became the third test of faith that they had to endure. Now, in those days, it was customary when a person was going to be executed by whatever means that they would be stripped of all their clothing, right? So you would get down to your birthday suit before you left this world. Um, but we find in this particular instance that the king was so enraged, he was so eager for his sentence to be carried out that he left them fully clothed. What he did do, though, was he bound them with rope. And then he ordered his men to lead them to the mouth of the fire, fiery furnace to be roasted alive. So imagine that. Here I am. I'm getting tied up. I know it's coming. And then the soldier grabs me by the arm, and he's hauling me toward the furnace, and we're going up the stairs, right? If I'm going to recant, <laughs> this is the time to do it because it's about to get real. There's no more time for appeal. I'm on my way to the fire, and I'm on my way to the fire with absolutely no knowledge that God will deliver me from it, i.e. I get to continue to live in the body and stay on the earth. You can imagine that would be a quite a test. You know, many of us in this room, and some of us who are there online watching, we would say that we are fully committed to Christ. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I, as I look around the room, I'm confident that many of you would raise your hand and say, I am fully committed to Christ. I am his, 
I trust in him. I'm all in with him. But has your faith ever been tested? I mean really tested. Has it ever been tested? You know, it's easy to make professions like that when you have your health. It's easy to make statements like that when your bills are paid and your house and family are in order. It's easy to make those kind of statements when the government that you live under is not pressing down on you, persecuting you for your faith in Christ. But what if those things were reversed? What if your health was in the drink and your home is not in good order and your family is not in good order and your government is coming down on you with fiery threats because of your faith in Christ? I kind of want you to think about that for a moment because it could happen. It really could. It could happen that the old red, white, and blue could change course dramatically. And you know, I like to think of myself that I would stand. I would like to think that I would be just like those guys and just like Daniel. But you know what? I dare not boast of what I would do till I get in the situation. In other words, it would be best for me not to be arrogant but rather to pray, Lord, help me to stand if it ever comes. I hope that I'll be faithful. Help me to be faithful. Truth point number three. We tend to see testing as all negative. Something to be avoided. Something to be delivered from. However, when God tests his children, it's not for their harm, but for his glory and their ultimate good. Just because you're going through a fiery trial does not mean God has abandoned you. In fact, he's probably the one who's allowing it to happen. And it's not because he's angry with you. But it's because he wants you to grow. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, by the way, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Those of you who have been around Federated in the Mission Church know that I have gone through a few trials. In 2004, my wife and I were in a head-on collision. It was life-changing. In late 2016 and early 2017, I had a complete and total mental and emotional breakdown. Some of you were there. You remember. And I can tell you that those trials were dreadful. I'm talking, I don't have, I can't use the words that would express enough of how dreadful it was. But you know what? When I look back, um, I rejoice in those trials. Because I can see how God strengthened my faith. I can see how he changed my direction. I can see how he grew me up spiritually. He taught me that I can rest in him. Let me tell you what, church. Living for God in a pagan world guarantees the trials and testings of your faith are going to come. 
But we have the indwelling presence and power of God's Spirit to bring us through the trials with greater and stronger faith in Christ. Well, moving on to 24 through 30. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faith was now fully tested. They stood faithful to Yahweh right into the fire. As they fell in, they discovered that the God who did not save them from the fire was now saving them in the fire. Verses 24 and 25, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose up in haste and he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered, yeah, true, O king. And he said, but I see four men and they're unbound. Their, their ropes have come off. They've burned to cinder and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. I want to address that for a moment. Some English translations, specifically the King James Version and the New King James Version, say, and the appearance of the fourth was like the Son of God, leading us to think that this is Jesus. And if, in fact, that's the correct translation, then that would mean that what we see here in this scene is a Christophany. A Christophany is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And it happened multiple times. We have multiple occasions in the Old Testament where we see the Son of God, Jesus the Christ, coming and appearing before he came into the world through Mary. But, and I don't know if it's what it is or not. I just simply would say this, that Nebuchadnezzar would not recognize the Son of God if he came up and shook his hand. So it's not like he knew, oh, that, that's the Son of Yahweh. No, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have recognized. It would, it would have required divine revelation for him to recognize that fourth person as the Son of God. And when we look at the text, there's no indication that any divine revelation was given. What is given to us, though, is the fact that Nebuchadnezzar understood that the fourth person in the fire had to be an angel or had to be some form of divine being because not only is he protecting himself from the flames, but he's also protecting Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And of course, as he observed this, it changed his demeanor completely. Look with me at verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. It's interesting, Nebuchadnezzar used the term Most High God. I wonder, was Nebuchadnezzar making a profession of faith? Was he saying, wow, I'm convinced. The God of the Jews, the God of Israel, Yahweh, He's the only true and living God. Is that, is that what he's doing? Well, I'm going to say to you, not yet. Not yet. But what he is doing is he's given testimony that the God of the Israelites was greater than any of the gods that he worshipped. Because the God of the Israelites showed up and delivered his servants in the most dire of circumstances. 
nonetheless, Yahweh's deliverance of his servants in the midst of the fire, not only did it increase their faith, but it pushed Nebuchadnezzar another step closer to a true, repentant, saving faith. I'll leave that till next week. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar said, after he experienced all this, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel. So he's just, you know, this divine being. And delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. Now, you see, he's not very Christian there, is he? He's still got a lot of paganism in him, right? Be torn limb from limb, and their houses will be laid in ruins or turned into a dung heap. Why? Oh, this is great. For there is no other God, not even his favorite God, Marduk. There is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. And so the men, just a few minutes earlier, that he had thrown into a fire. And they were thrown into the fire because the tattletales that wanted their positions thought this would be a great way to get them out. Now all of a sudden, they get a promotion. They get a promotion. They get more authority. They get more power in the province of Babylon. Truth point number four. God is not promised, and this is really, let me say this. This is really one for all of us to really hear and take, take note of. God is not promised to deliver all of his servants from or in the fire. He has not made that promise. So when you hear some slick TV evangelist, and they're not always just on TV, when you hear them tell you that if you walk with God, you'll have nothing but blue skies ahead, prosperity and health and all that good stuff. Listen, that is a lie. That is a lie. That is a lie. God has not promised to deliver all of his servants from the fire or even in the fire. But he has promised, this is not a lie, that he will never leave nor forsake his servants. And if he does not deliver us out of our physical trial, he will either grow us through it and or give us complete deliverance when we leave this world to stand in his presence. I take comfort in the revelation provided by the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart, Though our outer body or outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Anybody in the building feel like your outer self is wasting away? Yeah, there's a few of us. Notice what Paul says about that. For this light momentary affliction... Now, listen, I've been through it, right? It doesn't feel light. 
<laughs> and when you're in it, it sure don't feel momentary. On the other side, you look back and, wow, that was a short amount of time. But when you're in it, it's like forever. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we do not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. But the things that are unseen are eternal. So wrapping it up, Christian, Daniel chapter 1 and 2 show us that there are times when we must stand with diplomacy. And Daniel chapter 3 reveals that there are times where we must stand with boldness in what we know from God's word and his spirit, those things that we know are true. Let us then seek discernment and wisdom from God to know the difference. Let us also seek from God the confidence that he is with us and that he will deliver us. He will deliver us from or in or beyond the fire. Either way or any of those ways, he is faithful and we can rest in him. To those who are yet unbelieving, who have not yet given their heart and life to the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to know that the faithfulness of God to you is shown in his son on the cross bearing the sin of humanity, dying for that sin, paying that debt, then rising from the dead to bring new life, eternal life to all who will embrace him as Savior and Lord. And I invite you today, I invite you to receive his offer of forgiveness, his offer of eternal life. And if you have questions about that, please connect with us. My contact information is on the screen. I'd be happy to meet you anywhere at any time to share with you what God has to say about these things. Father, I thank you for the opportunity that we've had this morning to look into this chapter and to learn some things from it. I pray that your spirit would truly empower us to do that, to learn, and then to apply. Strengthen us, Lord, to serve you faithfully as we see Daniel and his friends doing there in Babylon. As we live in a pagan world, may we show forth the light and the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, help anyone who is here today who needs spiritual counsel or help to come and receive it today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is On Mission. The Mission Church is located at 12001 Ridgemont Drive in Urbandale. To learn more about our ministry, visit our website at themissiondsm.org or call us at 515-255-2122. We gather for worship each Sunday at 10 a.m. We would be honored for you to join us. Have a blessed day, and thank you for listening to On Mission.